1: Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett, and I'm your host for our talk with George Jankopoulos today. He was the founding scientist for Regeneron, uh, joining the company very early on in 1989. So that means we're closing in on nearly 25 years for his guiding hand there. And in the past couple of years, all his hard work has paid off handsomely for investors. The company stock I just checked is trading at more than $300 per share today and its market cap is more than $30 In our discussion, we talked about the scientific beginnings for Regeneron and also what led George to a life in science at all. We also discussed his upbringing in New York City as a first-generation child born to Greek immigrants. I'm going to jump into this here, where George has just finished asking about the size of Nature's New York office. So that's it. Adjust your volume. Here's our First Rounders podcast with George Yankopoulos. It's large enough so that you cannot recognize people. I mean, I see people every day that I didn't know worked here. I remember when that happened to us. Yes. Yeah, Peter was Peter. telling me you're seven more than seven hundred people now. Two thousand. Two thousand, or maybe he said when he got there it was about seven hundred. Yeah, when well, He
2: got there. Yeah, that's about right. It's probably about 700. And what was the what's the growth since then? Well, um, I think there has been obviously we built a sales force, uh, but it's across the board, including you know manufacturing where we have our facility up in Albany or in Rensselaer. And throughout R&D, clinical development.
1: And you're a lifelong New Yorker.
2: I'm a lifelong New Yorker. That's yeah. right. I was born on this island.
1: Let's talk about that. So you're born where?
2: I was born in Manhattan.
1: And
2: I lived all over, but mostly in Queens. I grew up closer towards the city in the Astoria area. And yeah. then progressively, we moved a little bit further out each time. But I ended up going to the Bronx High School of Science. Yeah, Why? It had, you know, science in the name. I knew I wanted to be a
1: scientist. So Why did you know that? And, and at what point did you know that?
2: Um, I was always interested in science. I was, I guess, directed in that direction in part by my family's history. We were first-generation Greek immigrants. Uh-huh. My family had actually been, prior to the war, pretty well off because my grandfather, whose name George, Damus Yankopoulos, just like me. Uh-huh. That's how it works in Greek families. You skip every other generation. You after your grandfather. Um, he had been born a Turkish slave. Uh, and somehow, it's a remarkable story that we don't have time to, he became Greece's first electrical engineer and built the first power plants in
1: Greece. Yeah, we have time for that, though. How did that happen?
2: Well, he was a freedom fighter. He somehow got caught, sentenced to death, escaped, made his way somehow to Austria, where he was cleaning the opera house after the performances in Vienna. And he taught himself German by reading the thrown out librettos and somehow got himself into university there. And the thing that I remember when I was a little kid, he told me, and I guess these are the sort of experiences that influence you. He had obviously grown up in a part of Greece that was subjugated by Turkey still at the time, mm-hmm. northern Greece, of course they had no electricity, nothing like that. When he went to, somehow when he got to Vienna, what was he amazed by? Electricity and lights. He just couldn't believe it. And somehow that engaged him and caught his fancy and he wanted to learn all about it. And he became inspired. You know, from growing up where his whole life goal was, you know, to fight for freedom for his part of Greece, it changed to learn everything about electricity.
1: But he did that in the German language. He taught himself German and then went to a German university.
2: Exactly, And somehow he found an Egyptian partner and together they built Greece's first electrical power plants. Actually, he first started – Ironically enough, he made and lost a couple of fortunes because he first started out in Smyrna in Turkey. Mm -hmm. In he was born in eighteen eighty three, so he was building these first power plants right around nineteen eighteen or so. And if you know anything about the history of that region, that was just before what they call the Catastrophiti Smyrnis, the catastrophe of Smyrna, when for a variety of reasons it was a very Greek uh, dominated business at the time, and the Turks basically decimated it all, and um, most of the people died, and and, of course, they lost all their businesses. So he built his first two power plants there, became pretty well off, lost it all, became a pauper, and somehow made his way back to northern Greece that had been liberated by that time. Mm-hmm. Somehow got some more money together and started doing it all over again, built – 14 of Greece's first electrical power plants, and he was very well off, the family was well off. When my dad was small, they were very well off, and then uh, the Nazis came. Sort of ironic, because he was educated in Germany, uh-huh. and they nationalized all his power plants and put him in jail. So my grandfather uh, was in jail for a very long time, and then the communists came and They liberated him, and they were going to, there was, in Greece, there was this whole, after World War II, there was this whole civil war involving uh, the communists, supported by Russia and so forth, trying to take over. And I guess they liberated him, took him out of jail, where they wanted him to be sort of their puppet, because he was a pretty prominent guy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he didn't, so he went back into jail. And to make a long story short, somehow my dad... um, Made it to America eventually and got my grandfather out of jail and got him, uh, brought him over to America right around the, a few years after I was born.
1: So, but your dad, for huge chunks of time, his father was in jail then. Yeah. And he finally got to America and took it upon himself somehow and got him out yeah, and brought and him over Yeah, he actually to the worked with a
2: congressman from Queens that had to, I, the way my dad says it, you know, a very specific bill he had to put together to get
1: him, you know, freed and sent over. And so, you know, you you said your grandfather was um, struck by electricity and lights, and that's the thing that pulled him in that direction. So what was it that brought you to science?
2: Well, so when I was a little kid, my dad never finished his education Mm because of the wars, and we were struggling, and the family had just recently come over from Greece, and ever since I was a kid, he would point to my grandfather and say, look, my grandfather educated himself, made himself this epistemon, which means either a very highly educated person or a scientist in Greek, made himself very highly educated and built up the family and, you know, now it's your responsibility to do the same thing. Be like your grandfather. You named after him, you know. Focus on education and use it in some powerful way.
1: Is that? Did that put any pressure on you, though? Your dad just put the pressure of the entire family on your shoulders at that point.
2: <laughs> well, it's funny. I had a great childhood, and I had two great parents. And my dad is one of these classic dads that you know he loves you, but he doesn't really talk about it all the time. He's constantly pushing you. It doesn't matter whether it was sports or school. Um, and nothing is ever good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it was balanced by you know my mom, who was total unconditional love. So it was a perfect combination. Yeah. Pressure, I don't know. I don't even know what that really means. It was it was fun. And I thought, I have to say, one thing that they did, which is great, which I think, I can only hope I'm at all doing this to my kids. When your parents raise you with great stories, and somehow it touches you and involves you, like they, you know, we were very poor growing up, but they told me stories about the Greeks and all the great things my ancestors had done, including my grandfather. And they made it seem very real, whether they were talking about mythological figures, you know, back from the Trojan War, or whether they were talking about, you know, stories about Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, or whether they were talking about George Demis Yankopoulos. I just felt I was part of that, you know, lineage. And I thought that, you know, if I worked hard enough, I could make an impact. And I think that's a great way to raise kids. Yeah, And so uh, it makes you feel important. It makes you feel like you can make a difference in life.
1: And so you're in Queens and you see this it's science in the name. Science, yeah. yeah, and you thought, that's where I'm going to go. Um,
2: well, to give credit to my sister, my sister was two years older than me. And she, from the science point of view, is almost an extreme form of me. She's theoretical. She has a PhD from Columbia in theoretical astrophysics. Uh-huh. So she was also into science and she was, you know, I guess it was a whole family thing that we were using <laughs> science to change the world. So... Um, so she told me about this Bronx High School of Science. She got herself in.
1: And then, of course, you know, that was what I had to do. And then I, I did my I did my research for this, but you won an award or something, the Westinghouse Science Talent Search? Yes. What's that about?
2: Well, now it's called Intel Science Talent Search. And interestingly enough, I'm now on the board. It's a phenomenal program that started... started by westinghouse was the sponsor for many years it was really well known in science geek circles Mm -hmm. um, because basically it rewarded and recognized i guess back then now the reward is much more substantial i think the winner gets a hundred thousand dollars this year but um back then it was more about uh, recognition and it was a whole bunch of science-oriented kids throughout the country. And I think actually it's international as well. So throughout the world, who are competing on doing science projects. Uh, Yeah, I think I came in first in biology and maybe fourth overall in that. And it was a great experience. And it once again, it made me feel like I could do something if I could do really well there. But it had a lot to do with the fact that I went to the best high school in the country for science. There, I had some phenomenal teachers who really were able to just further develop my excitement and provide further inspiration and work hand-in-hand with me. And I guess ironically and relevantly in terms of what I do now, my science project back then had to do with regeneration.
1: At this point, you're still thinking about doing academic research? Or are you mm. leaning towards being actually a physician?
2: Well. Though my dad thought that science was the route towards success and to bring the family back from the depths and and resurrect us and changing the world, he didn't really know very much about science and academic science. Um, And I guess he was more directing or pushing me towards
1: using science to become a physician. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of a typical... Uh, immigrant story. You become a doctor. You're, you, know, you save lives. You do well financially. You're important in, in the community, everything else.
2: And, I, and my dad knew that. Yeah. And as you said, it's sort of typical. And for people who have nothing, that sounds like a great dream. And I guess it was my junior year in high school when I was doing this Westinghouse project, and I was very excited, and I was increasingly getting engaged in science, and I was actually meeting real scientists. I come home one day, and I announced to my dad that I wanted to become not a doctor, but a scientist. And he knew, even he knew that in America, scientists weren't really widely recognized. They didn't make lots of money. They didn't become super successful. Certainly wasn't obvious back then. And so he was very disappointed and upset. But My dad was a pretty special and pretty clever guy. He didn't read the American newspapers, but he read religiously the Greek newspapers. And a couple days later, he comes to me with an article that he had cut out from the Greek newspaper. And he says to me, well, if you're going to become a scientist, at least become like this scientist. And it was an article about Roy Vagilis, who... In case you don't know it, Roy Vangelis is probably the father of the modern pharmaceutical era. Mm -hmm. He was the first major academic scientist. He was a prominent National Academy of Scientists uh, member, very prominent lipid biologist, who was chairman of the Department of Biochemistry at Washington University in St. Louis. And that article was about how this very prominent scientist was leaving academia to become head of R&D at Merck, which at the time, was not what Merck is today. And, in fact, the entire pharmaceutical industry was not what it was today. And so my dad... But there's one, he's also Greek, no? Yeah. My dad gave me a role model and a hero. That's why he was in the paper. He, just like me, was a first-generation Greek immigrant. Uh, grew up working in his dad's diner in Ryeway, New Jersey, hmm. right out of Merck headquarters. My dad gave me, I think, the best example of a, of a role model... And one that, as you said, I could relate to because he was just like me. He came in. He's a first-generation Greek immigrant. And he used his science and education to to do important things. So my dad said, be like this
1: guy. Okay. So then how did you you get
2: to Regeneron? All right. So flash forward, I go through Columbia College. um, I go to medical school. I get an M.D. and a Ph.D., I'm just out of my PhD. I'm doing a postdoc year with my mentor, Fred Ault. And essentially, I get a call from this guy, Len Schleifer, um, who is now like my longtime brother and best friend Uh because I've now known him for over 25 years. But back then, I didn't know anything about him. And he tells me that he's trying to start a company.
1: But that's the thing. How did he? How did he find your number? He's just putting his thumb in the phone book. I mean, no. Somebody must have.
2: Well, Len is a very. If you know Len, he's very good at finding people and networking and calling people. And his big idea, at the time, which, as you'll see, it resonated with me, was he wanted to use modern science at the time to address and cure neurologic and neurodegenerative disease and regenerate neurons. And this was just at the beginning of the modern molecular era with cloning genes and so forth. But he had missed because he had done his PhD just before sort of the cloning revolution occurred. So he didn't know anything about it. And his big idea was to get the world's best molecular biologist and cloner, to get involved with him in starting this company and apply it to neurobiology, which people hadn't started doing yet. And his, I guess his first top target was a guy named David Baltimore, who at the time was the most prominent molecular biologist in the world, uh, you know, helped create the field, he just won a Nobel Prize. Uh, and of course, Len's a big thinker. He thought he could maybe entice this guy, but of course, he couldn't, and yeah. he couldn't even talk to him, couldn't even get on the phone with him. But he found the best guy he thought that ever worked with David Baltimore. And it was a guy named Fred Ault, Right. who was at Columbia at the time. He's now a big professor up at Harvard. But he was my mentor. He was, he had, I had been um, with two other folks as first graduate student. And he talked to Fred Alt. And, of course, Fred wasn't interested in doing this. But he said, oh, maybe you want to talk. So he said, well, do you have anybody really good who works for you? He goes, well, maybe you want to talk to uh, – my postdoc, George, though, you know, right now he's getting, you know, he accepted a job from Columbia, but he's getting an offer from the Whitehead Institute, he's getting an offer from Stanford and from Caltech, Um, but you could try talking to him. And I don't think Fred thought that it was going to turn into anything serious, but, you know, from the first conversation when I talked to Len, I knew there was something special about him, and I also felt something that we had some sort of bond something that connected us he was also a kid from Queens by the way also a lifelong New Yorker uh, but more importantly than that I think his view on the world the way he was raised he was a, he's a really decent and ethical guy and he really wanted to do this because he wanted to change the world and he wanted to do good he you know he had a lot of reasons he has a kid who suffers from a severe, neurological handicap. was born that way. Mm. And he, I could see, was really inspired by all the right reasons. And he needed somebody like me. And he kept talking about how we could do great things together. And I was getting pretty much convinced. But I wasn't really sure. And so I'd been talking to him for several
1: months. That's a big gamble. I mean, you have a you have a job that you're entrenched in. You could see your future sort of laid out in front of you. And he's asking you to give all that up and, and come join a startup, which has nothing, really.
2: Well, also, at the time, I had the biggest initial award that you could have gotten at the time for a starting professor. was called the Markey Award. It was an eight-year award of, I think, $250,000 a mm-hmm. year, which is about a $2 million award, which in 1988 dollars was yeah, a lot of yeah. money. Uh, and this also relates to why I did it, because though I was at the time I thought very successful on the academic front, I couldn't convince my dad I was doing important stuff.
1: <laughs> really? And I mean, you're you're a professor. You're at Columbia, then you said still? Well,
2: I had just accepted, and I had well, my dad wasn't impressed with that. But when I won this Markey Award for two million bucks, I remember going home. I used to always go home on Sundays to have you know, traditional family dinner and i would spring this on him and i thought he would say son i'm proud of you you made it so i explained this whole thing to him about how i got the biggest grant you could possibly get for a starting professor and he thought about it for a while and he said but let me translate (laughs) one thing i don't understand is out of this two million dollars this sounds phenomenal sounds fantastic but out of this two million dollars exactly how much is going into your pocket. And I said, you don't understand, dad. My whole life you told me and I believed in using science to change the world. I can use science now. I can try to understand the basic mechanism of disease and maybe I can figure something out that can make a difference in people's lives and, you know, help cure them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what I want to be able to do and and now, you know, I'm going to have my own lab. I'm going to be set. I have, you know, the resources. I can begin doing important stuff like this.
1: For the next eight years.
2: You know, it's set for the next yeah. eight years. Which you know, like the academic world, that's an eternity. But my dad, you know, he was, you know, no fool. And he, he said, he goes, but, you know, how much goes in your pocket exactly? Even after I gave him this thing about how I was – trying to do these big things and and help the world and finally had to admit I think it was like thirty five thousand dollars, which was a lot of money. That's a good job, yeah. Yeah. But not to him for for the time and effort and everything I'd put in. It wasn't a big enough uh was not big enough for him. And and he said something and that changed my life. He said, George, and he went through the whole litany of how he himself had fought in World War II and in the Civil War against the communists. And then of course he struggled to bring his family over and then he struggled to bring his parents, particularly his father over uh-huh. He went through the whole litany of everything. And and then he goes, and, and and now I'm supposed to be proud that you're telling me that after all this you're satisfied that you're making thirty five thousand dollars a year. And I said, but but I I it's more important than that I want to do something really important. I want to help people. I want to change the world. And he goes, I brought my family to the greatest country on earth. And he was a big believer in the United States of America. Because I brought my films to the United States of America and in this country, if you really believe you're going to do something that important that's going to really help so many people and change the world, then they're going to pay you a hell of a lot more money than $35,000 a year to do it. And it was literally about that week that I got a call from Len. And just to put it all together, I really believed in this guy. I thought he was really well-intentioned. I thought that in terms of our worldviews and how we want to do things, we were aligned. Uh, But I wasn't really sure. And I I didn't totally trust myself. I was 28 years old. So I have to have been talking with Len for a few months. And our dreams had been building up and so forth and so on. Um, But I I wasn't sure. And Len kept saying, yeah, but you have to commit, George. You have to commit. So the day before I committed, I said, "Okay, Len. But before I commit, you have to have dinner with my dad. So we met in an Italian restaurant, me, Len, and my dad. And my dad interviewed Len for a few hours. Really?
1: Just what? About what the company's going to be? What would my son be doing f- at this place?
2: No. It was, more, it was more about who Len Schleifer was. Was, was yeah. he a good man? Did he really, you know, was he going to be a true partner, you know, to my son? Uh, was he, you know, were you guys going to really work together? Were you guys going to be, you know, is this a guy I could trust or that I could trust for my son? And so forth and so on. So, my dad gave him his uh, stamp of approval, and we were off to the races. And
1: you, his stamp of approval, basically? And that was it?
2: Well, he more he gave Len. He still, he, I would say that he never gave me his stamp <laughs> of approval, no matter what, like I said. But it was great. No matter what I was doing, he would always find something that I could be doing better. Even today? Yeah. Unfortunately, he passed about two years ago. But, ah, you well, know, even up till-, till? Till the last day. It was if I had... You know, if things were going well at work, you know, maybe they could be going better. I could be discovering more. Or had I gone for a run that morning, he was really big into yeah, exercise. You know, yeah. you know, big Greek mantra, a healthy mind and a healthy body. So, if, you know, I might be let, you know, I might be doing well on one side, but I was, you know, slipping a little on the other.
1: Well, okay, so let's be clear. It's been how long, how, how old is your general now? 20 plus years? It's
2: almost, it's about 25 years. 25 yeah, we years. He opened up the labs. Almost 25 years ago. So last shortly after that meeting with my dad, uh, we opened up the labs in Tarot in
1: April and March of 1989. And last year you did $1.4 billion, I think, in, in um, drug sales, yeah? Or is that total Some revenue? Total revenues, yeah. Yeah, and that's net income of like $750 million or something. Well, we certainly believe it's one of the
2: best stories, having lived it, but also the fact that we really stay true to our principles.
1: I want to talk about Regeneron, the three drugs you have on the market, what else you have in your pipeline, and um, your mouse as well. But before we switch there, let's stick with the New York biotech scene for a minute. You've been here the whole time. Um, What do you you make of it? I mean, there's, you know, we know Boston, we know San Francisco. It seems sometimes that the New York biotech scene is both um, underappreciated and sometimes maybe overhyped. Well, I
2: think it hasn't come into its own for sure. And I think one of the reasons for that, is that probably there was no real foundational company to essentially spawn an industry in an area mm-hmm. so we saw that i mean er, in the early days at, in boston there was you know biogen and genetics institute for example which were at the time very successful and then they certainly spawned a lot of offshoots and growth. Because once people get into it and they see how it works and there's some success and then there's some things that maybe don't fit in in the parent company. And, you know, that's how things happen. That's how you nucleate um, the technology into an entire region. And obviously, you know, you had Genentech in South San Francisco. Um, So places like that, I think it starts. It starts you know, it might have been stochastic. I don't know, but it starts with a foundational company or you know, maybe a couple companies that really make things happen, and a whole industry grows in the area. I don't think New York ever really had that. Was that luck in the early days? Um, was it was it that maybe you know, enough people were in trying in the early days to 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 lead to you know one or a couple big successes? But I actually think that things are changing now. And I think for example, Regeneron is one big example. We're one of the top five biotechnology companies in the world today. Mm-hmm. And I also think we're a company that, you know, is doing it right. I mean, we're not a company that did it, you know, purely and commercially or licensed in some sort right. of right. You haven't licensed anything in. Right. Correct? Yeah. So we've built it all. We've built it from scratch and we've built enormous capabilities and I think that it's both a great example, but it's also now I think I think you'll start seeing some offshoots and some spawning both just from the inspiration but also from the people and technology. We now have 2000 people. You know, some of them have some great ideas and they're working on some technologies and may we may even be involved in um, in spinning off some of these things.
1: But that suggests that they might spin off in Terrytown or something because the other as you mentioned there has been no big company that would serve as a you know an anchor in New York, but also you know the space isn't there. In the, in the Bay Area, grew up around it because yeah. the space was was there.
2: No, you're right. It, there are structural you know, problems with trying to do it in New York City, as like you said, the space and the cost of the space, especially mm-hmm. for startups. People are trying to get around it and do things to get around. It. But I do think that it could be more of a regional. I mean, it's the Greater New York area. I mean, we do call them the New York Giants, even though they play in the Meadowlands in exactly. New Jersey.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you're hopeful then?
2: Yeah. No, I I think that things are starting to change. Um, And I I see both, I think the academic institutions are being much more open to it, not seeing it as a threat, but seeing it as a synergistic potential partnership. I think obviously there's now examples of success in the area. Mm -hmm. I think that's bringing in people and
0: capabilities, and,
2: and confidence, and belief. So I, I think it's happening. So I think that we'll be seeing big changes in the New York area over the next few years. I'm going to switch back to Regeneron here. Yeah, so basically, when we started, when we started the labs and we started off, our dream at the time was to cure neurological and neurodegenerative disease. And the way we thought we were going to do it was clone growth factors for the brain. And at the time, other companies that had been the prior generation of biotech companies like Amgen, for example, but also Genentech, they were working on things that affected growth factors, cytokines, interleukins that affected mostly the immune system, and the henopoietic system, like red blood cell growth factors, erythropoietin. That's what made Amgen what it is today, or mm-hmm. Neupogen, you know, um, GCSF. Uh, granulocyte growth factors. And so we reasoned, well, there must be growth factors like that for the brain. So if we could own that space, we could discover them, then we could maybe just like you can inject red blood cell growth factor and cure anemia, you could have an impact on neuronal diseases where you're losing neurons. So we were very successful scientifically. Uh, In the first five to 10 years, we were one of the most productive scientific organizations and one of the most highly cited organizations in terms of um, citations per person at the company and so forth. Mm -hmm. Because we were doing great science and we were discovering incredible things about the nervous system. In fact, we cloned many of the first growth factors that people are still now working on and using in neurobiology research research. Things like the neurotrophins, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, neurotrophin 3, neurotrophin 4, cellular neurotrophin. And moreover, we, we actually cloned and understood the structure of the receptors, how these things all worked, and so forth. And we were doing great science, and other people believed in us. So for example, Amgen, once they saw what we were doing, and they saw that we had cloned these great growth factors for the brain, they established a big partnership with us where we tried together to develop the brain growth factors for neurodegenerative disease. And so we thought we were, we were on a roll on a great trajectory, and we had a very successful initial public offering in 1991 based on, I mean, think about it, from 1989 to 1991, how fast things moved for us in that I think it was in either 89 or 90, we had the most highly cited Neurobiology paper of the year in the first year that we opened the labs, um, we started cloning the first receptors ever cloned in, in, in the nervous system. We started understanding their biologies. We did the first knockout that was ever done in, in biotech in the industry. Is that I didn't know that outside mm-hmm. of you know academia, um, because I had a connection to Columbia, where the first knockout was made with uh, Liz Robertson, and Argystride and a guy named Tom DiChiara, who was a friend of mine at Columbia. I recruited him to Regeneron, and within the first year or so, we had knocked out one of these neurotrophic factors. And things were going great. And like I said, we had a big partnership with Amgen. We went into clinical trials with some of these growth factors for neurodegenerative diseases. And I thought that it was that simple. And we did exactly what had been done with the blood cell growth factors in terms of, you know, we just injected them and we started measuring uh, neurological measures. To make a long story short, after a few years of that, uh, it all failed. I mean, basically, we didn't impact these neurodegenerative diseases. I don't think it necessarily means that the growth factors that we discovered and so forth, I mean, they're clearly incredibly important scientifically and biologically speaking, but We didn't understand enough about the whole process of drug development. We didn't understand simple issues about how to deliver things. Mm -hmm. We didn't understand about the types of diseases that you should really address. We didn't understand how to design studies. We didn't understand any of that. We were just a couple of smart guys who could do great science and could develop great technologies. But we didn't understand some of the most important things that grounded the industry that were determinants of success. And we've learned an enormous amount over the last 20 years, mostly about how you can fail, about learning all the things that can go wrong that can lead to failure. So success is in many ways not only having a great idea about how you can be successful, but how you can avoid the million pitfalls that you can have along the way that will derail you. And we didn't know a lot of that in 1995 or so, and our company was in dire straits, and, you know, of course, Len always knew that my hero was Roy Vagilis, and we thought that, you know, together maybe, you know, we made up one Roy Vagilis because I was sort of the science and tech guy, and mm-hmm. he was more the business guy, and and together we were equivalent to, to a Roy Vagilis, so I was sitting in his office one day. He says, you know, George, you know, maybe, maybe the two of us together, maybe we're not you know, we don't make up one Roy Vagilis. Maybe we should just call up Roy Vagilis and get him to come over and help us. And the funny thing is, is for 20 years of my life, since 1975, my dad, whenever anything was going tough in my life, would say, why don't you just call Roy Vagilis for some advice? And I would say, Dad, you don't understand. He's you know, the most prominent CEO in America seven years in a row. And, you know, he doesn't just answer his phone and talk to me. So when Len said this, I I almost sort of lost I said, what? You're beginning to sound just like my dad. What are you going, crazy? And I said, you're never even going to get Roy Pantless on the line. But just like, you know, we talked about before, just like he sort of cold called me and, and enticed me and engaged me and convinced me that he was trying to do something good and big in the right way, he somehow got through to Roy. And he convinced Roy to come give us a look. And that was, I think... It was an important time and period in our lives for many reasons one of them was also because you know we had a crisis in confidence at the time and it could have undermined what we were doing well we were doing a lot of things well we just hadn't really realized really the nuances of how many things you had to really consider and there were so, there's so many steps in the whole process. And so Roy, I'll, I'll never forget, basically he sort of agreed to just come one day and listen. And listen. Yeah. And, you know, he said, okay, I can be there tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And so Len calls me up and it was the night of our holiday party. And he says, you know, it was just before the holiday party. He goes, George he's finally coming he's coming tomorrow you gotta impress you know the hell out of him and you know you know convince him that you know we really have something worthwhile here he wants to see what we're all about and so he's going to be here tomorrow at eight o'clock so of course there was only probably 20 people at the company at the time mm-hmm. so i went to the holiday party you know, we finished off at about 2 o'clock, and then I pulled in all nighter to get ready for Roy Vagelis coming in the next day at 8 a.m. What does that mean? You
1: you, well, prepped things you wanted to tell him? You, I told him what we were about. I told him
2: scientifically and technologically what we were about, what we had done, what we hoped to do, mm-hmm. what our capabilities were, and we talked for, I think, two straight days. And, of course, I felt like I had been, you know, Really, put through the ringer yeah. um, uh, at the end of the, the whole time. One of the most important things Roy said was, I think that you guys have built in our building one of the most amazing scientific organizations that I've ever seen in industry. And you guys are exactly on the right path. Where you're a little lacking is really that, yeah, you, know, you got to apply the same scientific rigor and scrutiny that you're applying to what you're doing to get yourself towards the clinic and in the clinic for all the downstream processes. And it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, designing the clinical trials, it doesn't matter if it's figuring out how you're gonna, you know, make your pharmaceuticals and, and, and manufacture them and produce them to sufficient quality. It doesn't matter if it's how you're gonna interpret your your data. You can't delegate that to you know, people who supposedly know about it. So you got to use the same scientific rigor or the same top scientists who are doing everything else to do every step of the process. Mm-hmm. So if anything, we became more committed. I mean, so, so he made us feel like, hey, maybe we were onto something. So we stayed really committed to our founding principles and, in fact, extended it uh, in that, you know, like I said, we didn't delegate tasks anymore to non-scientists. We were building the best core we think of scientists in the world. And we started using them to apply and to address to every single step of the process. So I think, you know, we've managed to do that. So we just kept applying more and more of our commitment to science and technology throughout the entire organization. And we started learning, you know, from our, from our mistakes where things could go wrong. And we started trying to design around it to figure out ways to try to insure against. In our industry, you can't completely insure against failure because it's biology. I mean, you can't always predict everything, things go wrong, but you can do things to
1: minimize and to increase your chances of success. It raises an interesting question though, because at at that point, you know, a lot of companies may have just gone under when you had your first big failure like that, but you guys were able to keep going on. You raised more money from there?
2: Well, what we did was, and, and, you know, I think it's a tribute to the sort of great relationship and partnership That we have with Len in terms of our complementary uh, aspects. So even when we were doing the neurobiology stuff, I was starting to do new stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I said, we did the first knockout in industry. We were developing new technologies to be able to do new knockouts. So we were developing new ways of cloning receptors or we were developing things that were not at all related to what we were moving towards the clinic based on the first discoveries in 89. So for example, right around that time, the thing that was starting to come to fruition was this technology called the traps that was really spearheaded in our group. It came from really basic science discoveries that guys like Sam Davis and Neil Stahl and Aris Economides were making, but then primarily Neil Stahl kept taking the basic science and turned it into an applicable technology that led to these traps. So when things were starting to fail, we now were producing a whole new pipeline involving whole new agents that had nothing to do with the failures. And while, as I said, it was very complementary because I was sort of spearheading all this and doing this in the labs, Len, in many cases, was managing the board and everybody else who thought we should just be focusing on one thing and getting mm-hmm. one thing across the finish line cuz he believed in this stuff. And then when sure enough we had a problem to deal with and maybe the first things failed, now he had another asset that he could that he could raise new resources on. And that was sort of the history of Regeneron. And in fact, <laughs> there was a point in time unbelievably enough where people lost faith in the traps, but we had developed this other new technology, you know, having to do with you know, what we call velocity and Velocimune and get more resources. And then eventually, when the traps started really working and delivering, we had in place a whole nother pipeline opportunity with the new technologies, which really puts us in a unique situation. So th- this is what I think in terms of why we're so unique. And it has to do with our history, how we remain committed to it. And, you know, the type of organization that, that we built. And when I say we, like that, Len and I tried to build the most exciting, fun place to work in the world where science rules and scientists would want to be in. So I would venture to say that it'd be hard-pressed to come up with one person that we've lost in these 25 years that we wanted to retain. Some of the people who were doing the most important work 25 years ago are still doing important work today, but we retain all that institutional knowledge. The teams that work through all those failures and learn through those failures are there. We're all still together, and we l- know so much collectively. And we now deal with some of the biggest companies in the world, and we talk to them. And you meet their their key people and so forth. Then you know they're amazed that we've all been. I mean, I'm talking about our entire senior management team, all of our all key senior R and D people. We've all been together for at least twenty plus years. And they're amazed and, you know, they say, well, I've been at this place for three years and for two years before that I was there and for three years before that I was somewhere else. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but it takes 10 to 20 years to do anything useful. So if you're not doing something continuously, you've never really learned how to do it. Yeah, We have hundreds of people who have done it together, who are still here, who know how to do it. The the institutional knowledge that Regeneron has right now, I think, exceeds that in any other company. That's one thing that really, really makes us unusual.
1: Well, let me ask you this. So the way the industry is now, Regeneron could not be formed today. It could not be formed and funded for that amount of time, live through one failure, get, get funding on new assets beyond that, and have the time. You know, you guys are sort of granted this gift of time to eventually become what you are. What did what did Regeneron raise in, in total money before they started actually bringing things in? Uh, is it more than... An, More than a billion? Yeah, no, it's probably a couple billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, that just doesn't happen today. So do you feel like the replacements for Regeneron are not being formed today? And and is that a a problem?
2: Well, I I sort of laughed a little bit when you said we were granted the time. So we made the time. Well, not granted, but I I I mean, it does seem like a gift in some ways. Well, it was. No, I think the real gift is indeed that we lasted all that long and had that opportunity to learn. I do think that we made those opportunities with mm-hmm. the commitment and the persistence. And I have to, you know, once again, I have to credit Len enormously in terms of the commitment and the persistence. And I, I think we helped each other out. There are certainly certain things that I would have been willing to give on. You know, we joke with Len all the time about this. There were things I was definitely willing to give on, but there was a lot of things that he was willing to give on too. But collectively, we weren't willing to give on any of the important things, because we kept each other strong throughout that. Mm-hmm. But would the
1: VCs allow it? Would the public market support it? I mean, you might find well, a team is equally talented, but who would who would fund it today?
2: Well, like I said, we used very little VC money, and much of the much of our life was due to the fact that, as I said, we would innovate uh-huh. and we would invent and we would create value, and then would be able to make deals around that to support us. So most of our funding. Yes, we did have a pretty impressive at the time. I think it was the second largest IPO in biotech history in 1991. But Mm -hmm. that money ran out pretty quick. Uh, We raised a little bit of VC money at the beginning. I should say I think it can be done again, but just like there aren't, you know, 25 years ago, 25 Regenerons didn't start and you know somehow survive and figure out how to make it and so forth. It was very unusual then. Um, I think it'll be very unusual today. I'm not sure if it's harder or easier today, but it's going to be very, very rare because it's a magic mix of people. That's what it comes down to. And it certainly takes, you know, a couple of key people to top, but it takes, you know, a couple of key partners that they engage, you know, early on in the process. They need to sort of work together. You know, the miracle of having a guy like Roy Vangelis come in just at the right time, you know, we could have changed you know you know i talk about how committed we are to our principles but you know when you when you have a a crisis in confidence i mean sometimes you know you're you're very willing to sacrifice your principles i don't know what would have happened mm. so there was a lot of luck involved and so forth and some of it i guess is stochastic but some of it had a lot to do with the commitment of the you know uh, of a lot of the principles who were involved
1: have you ever thought about leaving regeneron
2: you know when you feel like something is your company, when if you feel it's your baby, it's like banning your child. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Len and I are so intertwined into Regeneron. I mean, it's something that we've built. It's something that's ours. Um, and we're so committed to trying to make it work that you know it's impossible
1: to really think about leaving something that's mm. you know it's your own baby. I mean you don't you don't miss the sort of excitement of the startup that you originally had.
2: Well, I didn't say that. For sure, some of the most exciting times we had at Regeneron were the early days when we were starting up. I think now there's obviously some very exciting times because of the I mean, di- different kind of excitement. Yeah, it's a different yeah. kind of excitement because of the power and the potential that we have. We can really try more things, we can really resource more things. I you know, I now actually get the pride in seeing, you know, some of the younger generation people starting to do amazing things. Um, but I do also miss the early days. But this is also what I'm referring to before uh, in terms of maybe how an era, an area can really grow from, from a biotech point of view in that I think that we're developing a lot of things at Regeneron that may not live best within Regeneron. So we may have some opportunities to get involved in spawning off mm-hmm. some offshoots, that you know can give us, uh, you know, that satisfaction as well. I mean, being part of something new and starting to build something from scratch all over again, while still having, you
1: know, the mothership Regeneron. Still the mothership. Uh, I wanted to ask you: you you're um, you do some teaching, right? You're a professor at Columbia still. Well, it was and- very
2: early. It was very important to me early on when I was at. Regeneron, because I love teaching and I love interacting in the university setting. It was also a great way to bring people in. A lot of our key people came from Columbia. So, in the first few years when I was at Regeneron, uh, I taught courses. I was involved in teaching courses at Columbia. I have to admit, over the last 10 years or so, I retained my faculty position there. But other than a few lectures here and there, uh, I don't really get involved in being involved in directly teaching courses. What
1: anymore. about the the Westchester Yorktown High School? You had a program set up there for science? All
2: right. That, I have to say,
1: is something that
2: I'm very proud that we do. But all the credit, once again, goes, as I said, when I was in high school, it was all about some phenomenal teachers that really yeah. made a difference. Um, the same thing here. More than 10 years ago, I was approached by a high school teacher from my district, the district that my family's in. And he was just so persistent. <clears throat> and here I was trying to save a dying company. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he was saying, yeah, but you got to give back in terms of science, education, all that. And he was right because that's where most of us scientists come from. They come from an experience that they had in high school due to some teacher helping right. them on some right. project and all that. So he really, to his credit, Michael Blue Glass um, at, at Yorktown High School together with uh, his partner in crime, Angelo Picciorelli from uh, Osnig High School. They really engaged us and they got us involved in both doing some mentoring on site of students. We actually have students who did what are now Intel projects. They are, you know, the the legacy of the Westinghouse projects in our own labs. Some Mm -hmm. of them actually did quite well in the competitions. But just as, if not more importantly, we support uh, the Westchester Science and Engineering Fair. Uh, We are... The, the their biggest sponsor because it's a bunch of kids and it's a bunch of teachers who are trying to do science. And it is so hard and resources are always limiting and so forth. So uh, I'm proud that we do whatever we can to help them. But really all we're doing is helping the teachers do these amazing things with amazing students. And I have to say it does bring me back when I interact with these kids to my, my first few weeks at Bronx Science because I'd come from a, a small junior high school in Queens. Um, and I went to the Bronx High School of Science and I was just blown away by the other students. I was so sure I didn't belong and I couldn't keep up with them. These kids were just mind-blowing, literally. They were mind-blowing kids. And I never felt as intimidated and as blown away as when I met all these amazing kids at Bronx Science. Until now, I go to the Westchester Science and Engineering Fair or I go visit, you know, Michael at, at Yorktown or Angelo at Osnig and they, you know, they have me spend some time with some of their top kids. You're and still these kids away. are blown my mind nowadays. So of course, that makes me feel great because it makes me think that yeah, you know, there's hope for the future. Well, that's that interesting.
1: I mean, there, you know, you, there's a lot of complaining that the U.S. is falling way off in sciences; that the, the interest level is not there for the kids. But it seems like you don't you don't necessarily agree with that.
2: I, I know what you're saying. I think there will always be, you know, it is it's a tough career, and 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 the kids who go on to really be really exceptional, they have to be exceptional to start out. I do think, obviously, that there's there's more that we can do because right. it does start with getting these kids the experience, you know, getting them the exposure, linking them up with great teachers, all these things are rare. I mean, and you can't mandate this. You can't you know, have some sort of government policy and so forth. It you know, starts again with individuals, and we can all try to do our part. Um, but yeah, there are still great teachers. I've seen them. There are still great students. It would be great if we could figure out how to do more and better.
1: Yeah, sort of entice students back into this, yeah. this line. Um, what advice would you have for people who are thinking about starting a company today, some sort of entrepreneur who thinks they might want to start a biotech company? Right. Well, they should talk to me a little bit.
2: But, uh, send them your way? No, I think that it depends what model they want to have. And I only know about our model. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's other successful models to a degree. I mean, there's a lot of people who've made a lot of money. Um, and it depends what people's end games are. I can talk about the model that we had, which is a model where we really were committed um, and when I say we, like I said, a lot of credit has to go to Len, to this concept of we were in it for the long haul, we were going to really build something, we were going to do it the right way, we were going to do it to help patients and people we were going to try to really understand and make a difference in human biology and human disease and if we were successful in doing that then we'd have a successful company.
1: But it seems like also constantly innovate. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, there's a line of thought that you focus on one asset, you only fund one asset, right. but what was important to you guys was that you had a, a pipeline. No,
2: I totally agree with this. This notion of constantly innovating and constantly reinventing yourself, even in the face when one thing is exciting, that is something that was in our DNA from day one. And as I said, we had to defend that. And and I'm really thankful to Len, because in, in many cases he defended that Against the board and so forth, other people, and certainly financial analysts and so forth, who were saying that you guys are crazy. What are mm-hmm. you guys worrying about investing in these other things when you know you should be putting all your resources, all your focus on this one thing? And yeah, that is sort of funny. You know, when you talk about you have advice for other people and so forth, one thing is is that you shouldn't necessarily listen to everybody else. You can listen to the analysts for sure, because. Just five years, five to ten years ago, they were all telling us that we didn't know what we were doing because we were wasting all this time constantly innovating, as you say, and, and inventing new opportunities without just focusing on one thing moving along. All of a sudden, everybody says, Well, this is the right model. This is the paradigm. This is what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And that comes down to fundamental beliefs. And as I said, once again, very importantly validated by Roy Vagelis, that if you're in the biopharmaceutical business, it starts with the bio. And it starts with science. And in order to do science, the most important thing that breaks down limitations and barriers is technology. So you've got to be doing the science, and you got to be technology-oriented, and you've got to be constantly innovating. Otherwise, you really shouldn't be in the biopharmaceutical business, I don't think.
1: I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we'll end. But So when you met with Roy Vagelos, did you tell your dad you were meeting with him? What, what was his response?
2: Yeah, no. My, my dad, as I said, my dad's greatest guy in the world. But nothing was ever enough. So by by that point, he had said, "Well, you know, now in your career timeline, you've you've you know you've surpassed Roy Vagelis. You know, you're beyond that. You don't need Roy Vagelis. Oh man! So, so he's a tough guy to please and, and make happy. So just the fact that I had you know finally hooked up and partnered, and now my mentor, my hero, was now part of my life. You know that wasn't enough for my daddy.
1: Uh, listen, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. All right. No, thank you. It was fun. Thanks. All right. We've reached the end. I hope you enjoyed that. I definitely enjoyed talking to George. It was both informative and fun, so I'd like to thank him for that. Here's a reminder that you can subscribe to these podcasts by searching Nature Biotechnology in the iTunes store. As always, thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music, and thanks to you for your ears. I'm Brady Huggett, and you've been listening to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast.
0: Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.